And so at last, we come to the end of our weeks-long journey through Ephesians. We've heard several voices along the way, each one helping us find our way. Pastor Sue called us to remember what it's like to be an outsider who's been invited in and to understand that invitation as our calling. Henry Stewart challenged us to be what Paul claims we already are, a new community founded on love and justice. Peter H. Scott invited us to consider what it means to be a community called to gratitude, a kind of childlike trust that God is making and will make all things new. And Paul, of course, has both lifted us up to heavenly places, places we can barely discern from our present circumstance, and brought us right back down to earth with instructions on how to live in the kind of community that Christ gave himself to create, a baptized community, dead to the world, and alive in Christ. It's been a long but good journey. And so we come to the end and find ourselves being called to prepare for battle, battle with the powers and principalities and authorities of this world, those spiritual powers which Paul announced as already being under the dominion of Christ, but which do not yet recognize that fact and so continue to resist and pretend that they are still forces to be reckoned with, the rulers of heaven and earth. Those powers made manifest in institutions and governments, the most prominent of which in Paul's day was the Roman Empire, the greatest power on earth, the source of life and wealth to its loyal subjects, the source of misery and death to its enemies, the emperor a god demanding worship, insisting that all call Caesar and only Caesar Lord and Savior. Well, Paul draws back the curtain on such pretension and makes clear that even Caesar's name is under that of Christ, the one lifted up on a cross, lifted up from the grave, and lifted up again a third time to be seated at God's own right hand, there to rule all things and to draw all things and to reconcile all things to himself according to God's good pleasure. Things on earth, the empire and all its trappings, and things in heaven, the spiritual forces lurking above and around that empire, all things, not only in this age but in the age to come, are being gathered up in Christ. And that, Paul says in chapter 1, that's the backdrop against which we form Christian community, in which we follow Christ. The outcome already known to those of us who call Jesus Lord, an outcome not yet revealed to those spiritual powers and principalities and their physical manifestations, the Caesars of this world, who continue to believe and insist that we believe right along with them, that they're running the show, making the world a better place or not, according to their own whim or will. Well, having proclaimed the outcome of this cosmic struggle, Paul called the Ephesians to live accordingly, to practice, as it were, being like the God who saved them, learning how to love and to forgive, to be gentle and generous, and to put others' needs before their own, to practice these things, and so gradually take on the likeness of Christ, to learn how to behave toward one another in ways which reflected the truth of their baptisms, to treat everyone differently, because they were new creations in Christ, to behave differently in their congregation, to behave differently in their homes, to behave differently in their work and with those who worked for them, and to slowly, slowly, slowly learn to live as if they really had died in baptism, 
as if they really had been cut off from the old ways of being, as if they really had been made alive in Christ, as if they really had been transplanted into the kingdom of God. And there it could have ended with the creation of an ever more holy community, an ever more loving congregation, an ever more Christ-like body of disciples being formed into the image of God. But that's not where it ends. It ends with Paul calling us to gird our loins, to tie our shoes, to set our helmets firmly on our heads, to grab our shields and swords and prepare for battle. It's the kind of language that makes us squirm. We Mennonites get queasy when we hear such talk. Other Christians do too. Commentators fall all over themselves to remind us that, well, this text is not supposed to be read as endorsing taking up arms against our enemies. A point that seems kind of silly and self-evident until we remember, oh, the Crusades and the sacking of Constantinople and the persecution and the murder of Jews the martyrdom of our Anabaptist ancestors, the evangelical language of today's politicians and military leaders, when we think just a little bit about church history, both ancient and contemporary, the commentator's caution seems pretty necessary after all. Much harm has been done by a distorted reading of texts like this. We have good reason to squirm. Well, as an antidote to our queasiness and squirming, I'd invite us to try to hear these words with pre-Constantinian ears. For the first 300 years or so of its existence, Christianity was an outlaw religion. It was comprised of tiny pockets of believers scattered all over the Middle East, Asia Minor, Northern Africa, and Southern Europe. And these little pockets were sometimes persecuted, sometimes tolerated, and always considered strange. And they had little or no access to power except the kind of power that came with the occasional wealthy uh, convert, and even that power was, was pretty local. That was the case when Paul wrote this letter. And it remained pretty much so up until the day that the Emperor Constantine had a vision. In that vision, saw himself riding into battle with a cross to guide him, a battle which he won. And sure enough, when the cross became the standard of his army, Constantine was indeed victorious and so declared that Christianity was now the official religion of the Roman Empire. And that's obviously a very oversimplified version of a lot of complicated events, but it seems to me it's the gist of the thing. Um, in any event, that connection between the church and the empire has been status quo in the West ever since. So when I suggest that we need to try to hear this text with pre-Constantinian ears, I'm suggesting that we have to try to hear these words not as people accustomed to power, but as people without power, except that power which comes from Christ. When we listen to this call to prepare for battle, as people whose only strength is that which comes from Christ, we may hear it differently. More specifically, if we can hear these words, not as people grown comfortable with empire, but as people persecuted and threatened by empire, well, maybe we'll hear something new. And I think what we hear, what I hear, is a subversion of that empire, a subversion of the empire's claim to power, a subversion of the principalities and authorities that pretend to have the power of life and death over us, and it's a subversion that doesn't come by guerrilla armies or revolutionary conspiracies or the power of the sword or the power of the arm that wields the sword. The empire is subverted by the disciplines learned 
and Christian community. Paul takes this fearful image of the imperial soldier and reclaims it bit by bit until every piece of armor, every weapon, is seen as being part of God's intention to gather everything together into Christ. And so Paul instructs the, Ephesians, the Ephesian Christians, wrap yourselves in truth, protect your hearts with righteousness, walk in ways that permit you to preach the good news of reconciliation, hold on to your faith, remember who you are, and don't be afraid of anything. And on top of everything, know yourselves to be saved baptized, made new, claimed by Christ, part of God's called and chosen people. And having put on God's armor, preach, prophesy, tell the truth, cut through the masks, cut through the fog, cut through the curtains that the empire cloaks itself in and hides behind. And so reveal the truth of Christ's power, Christ's strength, Christ's victory over everything on heaven and in earth. In other words, though you live in the empire, and though you're a tiny minority in a thoroughly pagan world, and though you may be persecuted and threatened, you are not defenseless. You may be weak, but in Christ there is strength. You may have laid down whatever weapons the world carries, but in Christ there is strength. The principalities and powers and authorities of this world may continue to act as though they rule and may insist on your allegiance, but in Christ there is strength to resist and to overcome and to endure. And more than that, in Christ you have the power to speak, speak good news of peace, to proclaim the truth of God's reign, to preach the word of God. No, you are not defenseless. You are not without strength. You are not helpless. You are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Can we hear that? Can we inhabitants of the most powerful nation in the history of the planet and members of the dominant religion in that nation and citizens of a society which often conflates the two, can we hear Paul's words of encouragement to a weak and tiny and persecuted collection of ex-pagans and wayward Jews and hear in them a similar word of encouragement, a reminder that whatever power we have is the power of Christ, that whatever strength we have is the strength of Christ, that whatever protection we have is this armor of God, that whatever calling we have is to speak words of peace and truth in a world which has been trained to place its hope in violence and the lies told by the powers of this world. Can we hear Paul's words with pre-Constantinian ears? I mean, such a message seems strange to our modern or postmodern or post-postmodern ears. We've grown so accustomed. We've grown so accustomed to being in control um, that we really, right, only look to Christ when things start to go bad. We've grown so used to our own privilege that we don't even recognize it until somebody challenges it. We've grown so complacent about our place in this world, our rightful place in this world, that we don't understand why others not so well positioned resent us so growing up in the empire, learning from our earliest days to believe that we are an exceptional and exceptionally blessed people. It can be hard for us to hear, Paul. And what we do hear so often seems quaint or old-fashioned or naive or maybe even offensive. But it may well be that it's time, long past time, for us to sit up and take another listen 
and to do so with ears imaginatively reconfigured to pick up the signal without the distortion and interference that we've heard for so long that we've come to mistake it for the message itself. To imagine ourselves as we really are, people called together by the Holy Spirit through the work done by Christ in the cross and vindicated by God in the empty tomb and proclaimed by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. A people who were not a people at all until that very moment. People who died in the waters of baptism and were raised into life in Christ, having left behind all the weight of sin and death, all the trappings of empire, and are now clothed in righteousness and utterly relying on the continuing work of the Spirit and the continuing care and nurture and love of the people of God. A people with nothing to offer, nothing to offer, but what we have been given in Christ Jesus. A people whose only strength is the power of Christ, whose only defense is the armor of God, whose only weapon is the word of truth and the gospel of peace. Can we get our heads around that? It takes a lot of imagination, I know. I mean, we're really a very self-sufficient lot. We've got a good thing going here. And we work hard to keep it going. And the same is true of the broader community of which we're a part. We've got a good thing going, and we work hard to keep it that way. We're well-respected in the community and strive to keep it that way. We can do pretty much whatever we put our minds to. I think it's really a challenge to hear Paul and to honestly believe that our only strength, our only strength is Christ. Well, maybe that's where, maybe that's where Paul's call to prayer comes in. Maybe that's where persistent supplication comes in, not simply because when we pray we hope to have things turn out the way we would like or think they ought to be. While we certainly do pray that way, it can sometimes feel a lot like that same self-sufficient thing we've got going so well with God at our beck and call and God's power being somehow secondary to the power of our own faith. And Well... Our prayer is, simply, is not simply about having things turn out right, no matter how understandable such prayers can be. It is, I think. I think it's also about assuming a certain posture, the posture of weakness, the posture of need, the posture of one who cannot fix what is wrong, who cannot prevent what is bad from happening, who cannot resist the temptations on offer, who cannot overcome whatever disease is afflicting us, who cannot triumph over sin and death and the powers of this age. The posture of a child on her hands and knees, that little one of whom Jesus himself said the kingdom of God is made. When we pray, we admit what we otherwise rarely do, that we are not self-sufficient, that there are things we cannot provide for ourselves, that there are things that the empires of this world cannot provide for us, that whatever strength, whatever hope, whatever grace, whatever peace we have comes from Christ and Christ alone. And so we hear Paul's call to pray in the Spirit at all times, to pray for ourselves, to pray for the saints, our sisters and brothers in Christ. And in so doing, we place ourselves in a posture conducive to hearing Paul clearly without all the fuzz and the distortion caused by our own egos or the lies and false claims of the empire and all those other powers that seek to hold us and, and bend us and shape us and call us back to what we were before we entered the water and felt the heat on our heads and entered into the only real world there is. 
Finally, sisters and brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the strength and power of Christ. When all is said and done, all the high theology and mundane instruction, when all is said and done, we end here, recognizing again that whatever we have, we have in Christ. Whatever hope, whatever strength, whatever peace, whatever joy, whatever salvation, whatever community, whatever holiness, whatever truth, whatever gospel, whatever we have, we have because of Christ. We have in Christ. We have for Christ. In the end, Paul tells us what we have is Christ. And in the end, well, that's far more that we could ask or imagine. In the end, it turns out, it's really all we need. For in Christ, all things are being gathered up to the good pleasure of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit in whom we pray without ceasing. And every power, every ruler, every authority, every spirit, everything in heaven and on earth will one day join the community of the baptized in giving thanks that it has finally come to pass. Until that day, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. May God make it so. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.